0: Welcome to the Bagwell Center podcast. This podcast features lectures and symposia hosted by the Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity at Kennesaw State University. The Bagwell Center's mission is to provide a platform for an interdisciplinary study of the importance of markets and economic institutions in regard to resource allocation, entrepreneurial activity, economic prosperity, and improved human welfare. Through extracurricular outreach activities such as guest lectures, film screenings, workshops, fellowships, and reading groups, the Bagwell Center places an emphasis on educating students about the foundations of market institutions and examining the related impact of government policy in a mixed economy. For more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit coles.kennesaw.edu slash econop.
1: Well thank you and it's good to finally be here at a very nice um, kind of uh, morning presentation at least I found it to be enjoyable and it seemed like other people did as well. Uh, Here I'm going to talk about something very different about the use of of algorithmic pricing. So there's a a fair amount of material I to cover so why don't I just kind of get into it. Uh, so, So I'm just referring to kind of automated decision making by companies as to the price they set. And there's a lot of things that fall into that category. But we can kind of partition it into two types. There's kind of rule-based algorithms, which is where basically a pricing manager will kind of will set the pricing rule. And we'll look at two examples of that in just a moment. And that can have you know, various levels of human intervention. Okay? But there's clearly there's a human that's kind of in charge of it. And then there's self-learning algorithms, where the, the company employee is going to cho- choose a, a self-learning algorithm and it's that self-learning algorithm that's going to, choose to determine how the company actually prices. And we'll get back to that, I won't give an example now, but we'll get back to that towards the end of the talk. So let's look at some examples of rule-based algorithm, pricing algorithms. Uh, the fact is, while this has become a very uh, kind of relevant topic in recent years, airlines have been doing this for decades under the top under the kind of framework of yield uh, management and so just give you an example i'll be flying on american airlines back to philly later today Uh, so what they will choose will be a bunch of buckets and a bucket is is just a category in each bucket they're going to decide how many seats there will be and they'll attach a price to a bucket and so when demand comes in for airline seats well if they have some seats left in the lowest price bucket, that's the price that's offered. Once all the seats in that bucket are used up, it then goes to the next highest price bucket, and so forth. So all this is pre-programmed, you know, into uh, I- into the into the pricing algorithm. But it's the pricing manager who's deciding how many buckets, how many seats in each bucket, and the price. And they could also adjust that over time. And that can lead to some kind of some behavior which is kind of sometimes seen as misinterpreted. And here's an example where they shut down Amtrak. There was, I believe, an accident. And all of a sudden Amtrak is not, you can't take that if you're on the northeast. Demand for airlines on the northeast skyrocketed. All of a sudden, you know, prices of fares going from let's say DC to Boston went up, you know, sometimes as much as tenfold. The airlines were accused of price gouging that they saw that Amtrak was disabled, demand for airlines would go up, so they went in and they intentionally raised price. But that's not what happened. That was just an execution of this pricing algorithm that was already put into the system. And with all this demand coming in, all of the lower price buckets were used up and so all that was left was the really high price buckets, which rarely are ever kind of drawn upon, but in this instance they were. Okay, so this was not a decision by the company to price gouge, it was something that was already built into the pricing algorithm. Another example which has a lot of, uh, got a lot of press, so some of you might have seen before was two online book retailers in the selling of this book, The Making of a Fly. And so they, once again, they similarly had a price, each had a pricing algorithm and the thing about it is that these two booksellers Profnath and Bordy Books decided to make each of uh, b- uh, booksellers' price contingent on the other one's price. So what Profnath did say, well, let's look at what Bordy Books is charging. So they just kind of had the script to kind of verify what that what that price is, and they set a price a little bit below it. So whatever Bordy's char- Bordy Books is charging, set a price which is .9983 times that. Bordy Books would look at. Profnath's price and decided, and what they programmed in was whatever Profnath was charging charged 27 percent higher. Well you can see what happens here. Just imagine that they're updating prices every day. We don't know exactly how frequently. So Profnath comes in and says, oh I'm going to set a price 27 percent higher than Bordy Books. Bordy Books just raises it just under that. Next day 27 percent higher. Bordy Books just undercuts that. And before you know it the price of the making of a fly is over $23 million. Here's the screenshot when it got up in the $2 million range. Okay. Now, obviously, it's not what they intended. But once again, this is a pricing algorithm. It's not pricing managers that each day deciding what the price is. No, they set a rule. Okay. So these are examples of rule-based pricing algorithms. They're very simple ones, and, but you know, there will be more sophisticated ones that are used, but it's still the basic principle. Now algorithm pricing can operate in in various dimensions. One dimension is it can engage in adjusting price over time. What's called dynamic pricing. Making prices sensitive to competitor's prices, demand shocks, inventories, and the like. And we just saw two examples of that. Those are examples of dynamic pricing. You adjust prices to, for example, competitors, as we just saw with the making of a fly. Or to demand, as in the case of airline uh, pricing algorithms. But there's another dimension to pricing, the algorithmic pricing, which is pricing uh, differentially across buyers, across consumers, labeled personalized pricing. And this would be like, for example, offering a coupon to someone based upon their clickstream activity. Okay. So both of these are out there. And so here I'm just wanting to kind of give you a, a, a kind of a, a brief overview of algorithmic pricing before getting into some specific issues. There's lots of third parties out there who are developing pricing algorithms which they then sell to companies. Some of them are done internally in companies, like the airlines. But some, you have third party vendors who are developing them, and then companies can buy these pricing algorithms. So here's one, A2I Pricecast, who says their technology utilizes learning algorithms to construct dynamic profiles of customers and their usage patterns as well as competitors, these systems rapidly and intelligently react to changing customer behavior, changing markets, and unexpected events. Okay, well pretty broad, but this is kind of the flavor of what they're trying to do. And we'll come back later on to A2I later in the talk when we look at some kind of interesting implications in the German retail gasoline markets. Now as I mentioned, algorithmic pricing has been around for a long time. But it's become much more common recently. Now you might say part of that advances advances in programming because that's a a crucial element to algorithmic pricing, but it's really about the data. It's the massive amount of data that's now available which is allowing algorithmic pricing to become more common. And And that's true for several reasons. You know, you think about if you have limited data you don't really want to hand your pricing decision over to a pricing algorithm. You want the insight, the instinct, the wisdom of your pricing manager to influence those prices. But the more data you get, you know, then it becomes more and more attractive to let the data determine your prices as opposed to the subjective assessments and experiences of your pricing manager. So simply just more data makes it more attractive to use the pricing programs as opposed to pricing managers. More data also gives you a reason to change prices more frequently. If you're getting more information on, on on sales, now it's not just on a weekly basis, but it's on an hourly basis or on the minute basis. You're getting more information on who's looking at your products online. So all that information now is coming at a higher rate, so there's more reason that you'd want to adjust price, and thus that makes it more attractive to have uh, algorithmic pricing which has the program adjusted as opposed to having a, a human gonna kind of look at these demands coming in every minute trying to figure out what price to set. Okay. Because as I said if you, if you only get information every week there's no reason to change price you know other than on a weekly basis. You get the information every 15 minutes well now there's a reason for changing prices much more frequently. And then there's these self-learning algorithms which use just data and the experience with you know, their prices to determine what are the best pricing algorithms to use. So it's not determined by, by individuals, but by the program itself, the learning program. And for, the, but those, for, for those things to learn effectively and to find profitable pricing algorithms requires a lot of data. So all of these reasons are reasons for why you know, algorithm pricing has become more common. It's because of big data. Now where is it occurring? Well, algorithmic pricing is particularly occurring in you know, several areas. One is where demand fluctuates you know, very rapidly. Okay, so that's, there's a basis here for wanting to adjust price a lot. So we know certainly with ride hailing like Uber and Lyft, they're adjusting prices all the time. They have the surge you know, multipliers and we'll look at that, a study on that in just a moment. It's something we experience. So where demand fluctuates a lot, there's a reason that you want to adjust price a lot and that's particularly where algorithmic pricing is being used. Where demand is very sensitive to competitors' prices. So you'd want to adjust your prices quickly in response to what your competitors are doing. That's another area. And that could be, I said, we'll look at retail gasoline, but you think about Amazon Marketplace and Buy Boxes, there's a lot of activity there in terms of the use of pricing algorithms. Where cost varies across consumers, so this is something quite different. This is where you know, the price of, what, what the cost is of providing insurance to someone, the cost to the company, varies with the characteristics of that individual. Or, the, or the, the, the cost to a lending company providing a mortgage depends upon the specifics of that individual. The likelihood they'll be able to repay the mortgage. The likelihood that there'll be a claim in the case of insurance. So machine learning is being used extensively to try to figure out those costs and what is the appropriate price to offer for credit insurance or other types of products. Okay? And so again, algorithmic pricing is easy. And then situations where you just have many products to price. If you've got you know, tens of thousands of products, you really can't have just a, human, a, a bunch of employees spending all their time trying to figure that out. And again, algorithmic pricing is particularly valuable there. So there's certain segments of the market where algorithmic pricing is becoming uh, particularly active. Now in thinking about algorithmic pricing, there's a lot of efficiencies that come from it. Your markets can clear a lot faster if price is adjusting to information a lot, lot faster. There's the reduced cost of adjusting prices as a result of that. Uh, and then there's, there's also lower barriers to entry for, someone for a firm that's new to the market. Because now they can get these off-the-shelf pricing algorithms, like from A2I uh, uh, technologies, as opposed to having to go through the learning experience that other companies would have had to do before the fact of being able to get these off-the-shelf pricing algorithms. So, and there's other efficiencies. So there's lots of benefits from algorithmic pricing. But there's also concerns about consumer harm, and that's one of the things I want to focus upon today. Uh, On personalized pricing, what we're talking about is enhanced price discrimination. If you can identify someone by their, you know, the information about their zip code, about past purchases, clickstream activities, that this is likely to be someone who has a high value attached to this good, maybe they have high income, you can charge them a higher price. Uh, But And so that's kind of you might think is bad from a consumer perspective, because on the other side, it could also mean charging them a lower price. If you find out they actually have a lower value attached to the good, maybe because they have low income. But still, there's there's welfare considerations there, which could potentially, on net, harm consumers. Another big concern is that the adoption of pricing algorithms can reduce price competition. And in fact, some of these third-party vendors are very clear on this. Feedvisor says uh, their algorithm tells you how to avoid price wars. Reprice or Express, there are features to help sellers detect and avoid a price war. Well, consumers benefit from price wars. Uh, and there's also real concern, and we'll touch upon this later in the talk, that these adoption of pricing algorithms developed by third parties might actually lead to more coordinated pricing, less price competition. Okay? Um, and that's kind of really what, what's going to emphasize here. Um, because that's one of the things about algorithm pricing is since you're not relying on individuals as much, you, know, you don't need to use you know, individuals inside your firm. You could say, I'm going to outsource the pricing because I can tra- export the data to this third party and they can decide on the price for me. Or I'll keep the data internal but I'm going to kind of purchase their pricing algorithm. So where before pricing decisions would have been made inside the company. Now that's no longer necessarily the case. But there's issues there that that could affect competition. OK, so what I want to do here, and we'll see if we get through all this stuff. We'll get, get through what we can. Uh, look at two cases, one in which algorithm pricing benefits consumers. And you may be surprised to hear surge pricing, with like the likes of Uber, actually benefits riders but harms drivers. And then a case where algorithm pricing harms consumers. And this is an online uh, study of online pricing of allergy medicines, but it's a broader point that that will be made there. And then we'll look at third party pricing. This would be like like a platform making the pricing decisions. Uh, And in fact, Uber is a case in point there. And also this issue of outsourcing pricing algorithms, having a third party vendor provide that. And then we'll look at the issue of collusion and how that's impacted by algorithmic pricing. Okay, so this is a study actually by a colleague of mine at the University of Pennsylvania, actually in the economics department, Juan Camilo Castillo, and he was interested in finding out, well, okay, we, we've had all this talk about surge pricing uh, at, at, at the time on Uber, but now it's true for other ride-hailing services. Uh, who really benefits from that and who, and if, is anyone harmed by it? So. The fare you pay at a place like Uber has a base fare attached to it, which just depends upon the distance and the expected duration of the trip. That's something that doesn't really change much um, on a high-frequency basis. And then you have your surge multiplier. And that's updated every uh, for this data set at the time period every two minutes. And that's in response to passenger de- demand and how that lines up with the supply of drivers. So if you're a driver for Uber, you might see something like this. Okay, you'll see a heat map. Let's say you're in Long Beach, California. And this is, kind of blows it up. And these numbers here are the surge multipliers. So it's saying whatever that base fare is, if you pick up a, a passenger here, you're going to get 2.6 times that. That's what's going to be charged you know, to, the, to the passenger. And the driver gets, you know, a share of that. Uh, In this data set, I think it was like three-quarters of the time there was just a multiplier one, so no additional charge. Most of the time, when there was additional multipliers, around two or so, rarely above three. But it's been known to go as high as 10. So there was a snowstorm on New Year's Eve in, in Manhattan and the surge multiplier went up to 10 at that point. The demand was so large relative to the supply of drivers. So what he has here is he has data on the use of surge pricing, and then he's able to simulate what things would have been without surge pricing. And what he finds here is that riders are better off with surge pricing, and drivers are actually slightly worse off. Now I'm not going to get into why drivers are worse off, but I will explain why it is that in spite you may not like paying surge prices, the fact is riders are better off with the use of surge pricing. Uh, Let's look down here. One of the things that you know is going to come from surge pricing is going to be reduced wait time. Because if we go back to our figure here, if I'm a driver over here and I look at this heat map, I see that, wow, this is really red. That means that there's very high surge multipliers here. If I take my car and bring it over here, pick up a passenger, I'm going to be paid a lot more. I'm going to be paid, you know, 2.6, 2.8 times more. And this is the appeal of surge pricing. It's going to draw in uh, drivers to areas which are uh, where you have demand far in excess of supply. And indeed, this is what you find: is that with surge pricing, the time saved for drivers in terms of waiting for a passenger. Is, is a big savings uh, in, in terms of, of waiting time. That it, it is, waiting time falls a lot for drivers with surge pricing. It also falls for riders to a lesser extent. Okay. But as it turns out, riders are made much better off here. And the reason why is for the riders, their value of the time is much higher than the drivers. And just imagine the area that you need to go from point A to point B you're going to be late for a dinner engagement, an appointment or so forth, your time is really valuable. The driver is much less so. And so actually this reduction in waiting time because of surge pricing is actually really beneficial to the riders. Uh, There's another benefit uh, for the riders which is more efficient matching. If you didn't have surge pricing and you had many more passengers than cars, then the passengers who would actually get cars were the ones who just happened to be close to a, to a car. So they would, you, you, you put in your order, the, the driver would get pinged, and they would just go to his ever closest. But that's not necessarily the person who would be, be most willing to pay for this ride, who really values getting the, getting the ride. Surge pricing helps to make more efficient matching. So for, the, so for the riders who really have a high value to their time at that moment, they're more likely to get to get a ride, and that benefits, on average, benefits all riders. Okay. So surge pricing, it's found out, is something which really really largely benefits the riders. Uh, this study here now is going to tell a different story, in terms of at least a different story and a different conclusion about the impact of algorithmic pricing uh, for consumers. So this is just for allergy, uh, over-the-counter allergy drugs. Uh, and there's a few things we want to take away from this study uh, and they're looking at uh, five of these online retailers. The thing about is that if we look at this figure down here there's tremendous variation across the online retailers about how frequently they change prices on all these products. You got retailer A who's changing you know, 37% of the products their prices on average for a given day. You go down to retailers D&E they're only changing you know, about 2 to 2.4 percent of the products. And you can see it better here. This is showing over, averages over a week, the percentage of price changes. So for retailer A, retailer A, it's, you know, it's around 50 percent of products are changed, really, kind of every day. Retailer B, somewhat similar. Retailer C, well, what they're doing is that about between 3 and 6 in the morning, they're changing a lot of prices. And otherwise not doing so over the day. And retailer E, they're just cha- retailer D, excuse me, they're just changing their prices once a week. So you see this real variation about how frequently the retailers are changing their prices. Okay, well maybe that's interesting, maybe not. You know, it's not clear why there'd be their variation. But now let me give you an additional fact, which is that the ones who change it less frequently are setting higher prices. So in this figure here is pricing frequency, it's actually kind of uh, in, in you know, kind of reverse here. So this is changing the median time between price changes is 168 hours, that is for a week, and over here is for one hour. So here we have firm A, retailer A, who's changing prices, you know, on average, uh, median time is one hour. And then we have B and, and D and E are the ones that are changing just, what, just basically weekly and on the vertical axis is the price index. So we can see here that those that are changing it less frequently are setting higher prices than those who change it more frequently. Okay, so now we have a relationship here. Those who change it more frequently have lower prices. Uh, And the story they want to tell, and I think it's a convincing story, is what they've created in this market is in essence a price leadership arrangement. Just think about the fact that if you're changing your prices on Sunday, once a week, you know these other retailers, they change their prices frequently. So, so, so they're going to react to your price. So if you set a low price, that's going to cause them to sell, set a low, lower price. So what do you do? You set higher prices. Because you know that's going to cause them to bring up their prices. So by creating, the, through their pricing algorithms, this price leadership arrangement, it results in higher prices in the market than would otherwise occur. <coughs> And what really allows this to happen is the pricing algorithms allows them to kind of commit to a pricing strategy in terms of the frequency. So this is one where price competition has been reduced as these firms have kind of created artificially this price leadership arrangement through their pricing algorithms as to how frequently they adjust prices. Okay, so. In these two cases, what we've at least established is that algorithmic pricing matters. It can benefit or harm consumers. And I want to turn to what are the implications of a third party setting prices, which I think is one of the most kind of unique features to algorithmic pricing that you can have another company or another company's pricing algorithm set your prices. And then also deal with the issue of collusion. OK, so let's look at this first with, with platform setting prices. So we're all familiar with, you know, most of these platforms. Uh, What's interesting is there's wide variation across these platforms in in terms of how involved they get in the pricing decision. So Uber, as you know, sets the prices. The drivers don't set the prices. Uber sets the prices. At Amazon Marketplace, well, the sellers that are there, they're setting the prices, but Amazon Marketplace offers the sellers a pricing algorithm if they want to use it. Airbnb, the property owners set the prices, but Airbnb provides recommended prices through their smart pricing algorithm. And at TaskRabbit, but they don't get involved in pricing at all. So there's, there's, a, there's a variation there. Now, there'd be a lot of things we could look at here, but I'm going to look at just, just one issue. And this issue is illustrated by this legal case against Uber. Travis Kalanick is the founder of Uber. And here what you had was, and I'll just kind of read from the, the uh, complaint of the plaintiffs. So, the plaintiff said that Mr. Kalinick had conspired with Uber drivers to use Uber's pricing algorithm to set the prices charged to Uber pr- uh, riders, thereby restricting price competition among drivers. They say that, well, th- these drivers ought to be competing, they're saying, but Uber is the one who's setting the prices for all the drivers. The uh, Kalanick responded saying, "Well, a driver shall always have the right to change a fare that is less than the prearranged fare." And in fact, that's interesting, and that's true. The drivers are not bound to the price that Uber states. But the thing is this, is that if I, as a passenger, say I've already revealed I'm willing to pay this price by accepting this, you know, this, the, uh, the, the price that's been offered to me, and that car comes. While they could offer me a lower price, they have no incentive to do so. So it becomes really kind of irrelevant. So so this raises the question of well, should a platform really be setting the prices? Is that really kind of harming price competition among, in this case, the drivers? But it would apply to any platform in terms it could be property owners at Airbnb. For example, suppose would be would we be okay if Airbnb decided tomorrow we're going to take the Uber model? Airbnb is now going to set the rents on all the properties on Airbnb. That would be fully consistent with what Uber has done. So this is the, this is the, the kind of policy question. Is this something that should be allowed or not? Is a question from a legal perspective, is it really is it illegal for a platform to control the prices? Um, and you know, and, and then, then there's also a technological feasibility question. That is, is it even technologically feasible in all these instances? For the platform to delegate pricing authority to the lower, to the, to, to the, um, in this case, it would be the suppliers of the services, such as such as drivers. So there's a lot of interesting questions related to what should be the role of the platform. And I, and I just want to give you, you know, since we have limited time, I just want to give you a flavor of these issues. Say that it is technologically feasible because there's a right hailing service in the Czech Republic that does exactly that, <coughs> called Lyft Go. So what a driver does here is at the beginning of their shift, they can program in several tariffs in terms of what they want to charge per kilometer, what the flagging fee they want, the per minute waiting fee, and the typical driver will put in five combinations. And so then when a passenger kind of puts in a request, this driver will see all the prices that would be a, that, that would correspond to the five kind of pricing rules they've built into their system at the beginning of the day. And then they can decide whichever one they want to use. So if they put in a high price and a low price, they can decide that, well, you know, I'm kind of at the end of my shift. I'm only going to take this ride if I get the high price. Or if they are not and they know there's lots of drivers around, they might say, well, I'm going to probably be competing pretty intensively. i better take the low price. And so what a customer will see they will see a bunch of options of drivers giving them uh, some information including the time it takes for the driver to get to them and the price. So they would see, I could take Milos who will be here in 13 minutes and charge me 369 crowns. Or Josef who is going to be here in 10 minutes and charge me 476 crowns. Okay. So you can introduce you know, uh, basically delegated pricing to the, to the, to the drivers. And then they can compete among themselves. Okay. So, so there is an issue here that needs to be addressed. Um, so now let's go to the issue of, of what's called, I would say, outsourcing, where you have a third party software developers providing the pricing algorithm. And one of the real concerns here is that this might harm competition. And what's different between a company developing its own pricing algorithm and a third party is that the third party might sell to competitors in a market. So when they're developing that pricing algorithm, they say to myself, well, you know, multiple companies in a market might adopt our pricing algorithm. In which case, our pricing algorithm will be competing against itself and we don't want the adopters of it to have low profits because they're not going to pay as much for this pricing algorithm. And so there'd be an incentive, in that case you might imagine, that the third party would make the pricing algorithm less competitive. Recognizing that multiple firms in a market might adopt it. And they want it to perform well for those who adopt it. So they'll be be willing to continue to adopt it and pay a higher price. Um, And these are, for example, the OECD has pointed out these concerns. Concerns of coordination would arise if firms outsource the creation of algorithms to the same IT companies and programmers. And the German Monopolies Commission went so far as to say a third party may sell an algorithm that knows it contributes to a collusive market outcome. And is even conceivable they see such a contribution as an advantage as it makes the algorithm more attractive for users uh, interested in increasing their profits. So let's see if these uh, concerns, uh, have any merit to them by looking at this one study of the German retail market. So here you have really good price data you know every five minutes on every German gas station and this is a market in which this, that company A2I Systems that I mentioned at the beginning of the talk started marketing their pricing algorithm to gasoline station operators. And we don't need to kind of go into the details of it, but the pricing algorithm is going to take a lot of historical data, crunch it to come up with what they think is the best price. And that's something that they adjust over the course of the day as new information comes in. Let's see here. Okay. So this is just telling us, so this is over time. And this measures here the share of stations that adopted the algorithm. And you can see over this time period here, kind of early 2017, a lot of them adopted it, got up to around 40% or so, you know, 20 to 40% depending on the station. And what was noticed was that there was an increase in the number of price changes over the course of the day after adopting the pricing algorithm, um, and there was a quicker response to competitors' prices. Okay, but the only point here is that there was this time period in which there was there's a lot of adoption of the pricing algorithm. And the question they want to look at is, well, how did that affect competition? Here we have this potential concern that, you know, if, if I'm a third party developer, I'm going to market this thing heavily in some market. And I don't want it to fear, you know, price competitively. It's just going to lead to everyone having low profits, in which case they're going to discontinue using it. So for example, I mean, we go back to the beginning with the making of a fly. I mean, there they would think prices kind of kept went up, 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 up. But suppose you had a pricing algorithm which always undercut a rival's price, and everyone adopted that. Well, in that case, they would just keep undercutting each other and prices would g- just go down. And that's low profits. And then people aren't going, the companies aren't going to use the pricing algorithm. So this is the concern. But we do see, well, what does the data tell us? So what, what they found was that uh, average price cost margins did go up after adoption of the pricing algorithms. But I think what's really telling is if you focus on duopoly markets. So we're looking at gasoline station markets where in a geographic area, there's really just just two two, uh, gas stations, just two companies competing. And there you see a very interesting effect. If just one of the two companies, one of the two stations adopts the pricing algorithm, there's basically no effect on prices. But if both adopt it, you see uh, increase in margins of about 29%. Now, this is, this is important to, to distinguishing among different hypotheses. If we think that the pricing algorithm is just leading to more effective dynamic optimization, then we ought to see kind of an effect on prices even when just one station adopts. But we're seeing it when, only when both firms adopt, which is really consistent with the hypothesis that it's reducing competition. It's also interesting that. You really don't see any effects for, for about 12 months. That's consistent with the idea that these, these pricing algorithms are, kind of are learning over time and it takes some time before they have an effect. Okay, so in the last 5-10 uh, minutes I just want to cover now about collusion. Um, I'm going to just kind, of, kind of skip over that and kind of just get to kind of the example. Uh, so pricing algorithms could affect collusion in in one way. They could do it is say instead of the usual collusion, which means you know it means that two companies or any number of companies are supposed to be independently setting their prices, competing. Under usual collusion, they decide, oh, no, we're going to coordinate. We're going to all agree to set a higher price, typically a common price. What's going to happen here is that they agree, but not to prices, but to pricing algorithms. And that could be a a much more efficient method of collusion if they agree to pricing algorithms. Now thus far, there's been one case. This was sellers of posters online through Amazon Marketplace. And two companies, they just engaged in good old fashioned collusion that they communicated. The only thing that was different was they were saying, let's each adopt the same pricing algorithm and, it's, and it was set up to set higher prices and in fact, what it was particularly set up to do was to search among the prices of, of other companies, other online sellers, find the lowest prices out there, and both of them would set a price just a little bit below it okay. so there was still some competition in the market, but not among these two companies that were coordinating okay, okay. so this is basically what I just described. So we do have that concern that with pricing algorithms it'll allow for more effective collusion. You don't always have to kind of communicate, agree on the new price as as conditions change. You just agree to the pricing algorithm and just let that do the job. But the more interesting question in my mind, and I want to spend a little more time on this, is can artificial intelligence collude? And so now we're getting to the self learning algorithm. Because what we just described there was it was humans colluding. We just colluded on pricing algorithms instead of individual prices. But now let's think about companies independently adopting self learning algorithms in the various types. And those self learning algorithms will take. Historical data, see how well you know prices. You know certain pricing rules perform. Adjust the pricing rules to come up with more profitable ones. Uh, And this is something which I was involved with um, uh, I guess they call it a hearing, but it's really just kind of a a, a kind of a conference, so to speak, with the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, We were talking about this algorithmic collusion. And there's a question of well, can self-learning algorithms really learn how to collude? and this is something that was just kind of recently kind of discovered uh, through simulations that the answer is yes. So, this uh, paper here in the American Economic Review considered a typical market setting. You got multiple competitors setting prices. The only issue is that they're not going to model managers. They're going to use self-learning algorithms, particularly what's known as Q-learning, to come up with more profitable pricing rules. Now, what's really important here to understand is that Companies are just, these, these self learning algorithms are, are learning independently. So there's no kind of coordination or collusion. Each self learning algorithm is just trying to find the most profitable pricing rule. And the question is will they independently learn somehow to collude? Well, first of all, in terms of the ultimate prices that they come up with, um, these is, uh, it's hard to see there, but think about this as the price of one company, this is the price of the other company, or this is the price of one self-learning algorithm, the price of the other, this is the competitive price, that's the monopoly price, and what this histogram is showing is, is the prices they settle upon. So the first takeaway is, yeah, prices are actually much higher than competitive prices, and getting pretty close to monopoly prices when the self-learning algorithms are used but there's still the issue of well why are they getting these higher prices and this figure here really uncovers what's going on and what's really impressive about the self-learning algorithms so this is one run so this is time here on the horizontal axis price on the vertical we have two firms and this is you know the prices associated with self-learning algorithms they kind of go down then they kind of go up and and they go up and they they reach this kind of pretty close to the monopoly price okay so they're getting kind of high prices higher than much higher than competitive prices but we want to understand what underlies that and so what they do is the following experiment they say we're going to intervene on the pricing algorithm on firm one and we're going to force its price down in one period and then we're just going to let the algorithms do whatever they do and just see how they react to that and so that's what happens here they just force price down and then just Leave unconstrained the algorithms. And there's two key things here to notice. The other pricing algorithm immediately retaliates, sending a really low price. Furthermore, the one that was forced to set a low price, they don't bring price back up. They actually just keep price really low. And thereafter, prices kind of remain low, but they gradually climb and go back up to this kind of inclusive price. So what these pricing algorithms, what the self-learning algorithms have learned to do is to basically punish deviations from this high price. Why are they setting these really high price? Because they've kind of learned that if they set a low price, the other pricing algorithm is going to punish them. And so they don't do so. Even though they might get higher, perform better in the short run, they know they're going to do worse in the long run. And this is what we think of as collusion. This is how we usually think of how firms successfully collude. And the self-learning algorithms have learned that. Um, I'm going to skip all the legal stuff. Now you might say that, okay, well, you know, yeah, it's done in simulations. Whether this happens in the real world is an open question, but maybe that's what happened in the German retail gasoline markets we just looked at. Maybe you think this belongs in science fiction, but the fact is where it's appearing is instead science. So the individuals who did that study, uh, along with myself, wrote a paper published a little, over, a little bit less than a year ago talking about the challenges that AI would present with regards to collusion. And in particular, I'll say here as an aside, um, the legal structure we have, which makes collusion illegal, I do not believe would make algorithmic collusion illegal. So if it does happen, we really don't have the legal structure to do anything about it. Um, and uh, with that, I'll end the talk and be uh, welcome any questions or comments.
0: Uh, yes? Uh, within the next century, do you think that algorithmic pricing will have any substantial impact uh, on our overall economy?
1: Uh, 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 absolutely. Um, I mean, it's probably having an impact right now, and it's just, it's just a little bit difficult to measure. You know, you think about, I mean, just think, once again, just think about Uber with surge pricing and how, it, how effective that is in terms of clearing the market, getting supply with demand. We saw it in a particular case where, where, where it has a real impact on welfare. Now, the question is, how broad is that? Because that's kind of a, maybe kind of an extreme case, but I think that's occurring to, to different degrees right now. So I think we just, you'll know, be able to process information a lot quicker um, and that's going to lead to more efficient outcomes but then there's this other side to it, will it reduce competition? So I think, I think it's already happening and what we just need is more studies to really kind of identify, identify those effects. Yes? Okay, so they tried to. So what they did was a, a, a fairly sophisticated market model. So it wasn't tiffy. It was you had multiple companies. They had a demand function, differentiated products, lots of prices to choose from. They even allowed for some variability in the environment. They wanted to try to make it, you know, as as, as sophisticated as, or let's say, as complex as possible. It's still much simpler than the real world. So that's why it's still very much an open question. In terms of well, can this happen in the real world? Well, what they showed is that certainly the, the types of models that we tend to use in economics—that in those in those models—that um, the self-learning algorithms can learn how to collude. Yes. I noticed that like a lot of the framing of this is the algorithms are colluding, um, wait, you but
0: even if they up consciousness, it's really funny. Um, but you said. Um, would it like be possible to talk about like the intention behind
1: implementing these practices um, instead of trying to like, prosecute the practices? Uh, no, this this is a very good question that gets to the heart of it. Collusion. If you look at the at the law, the cases, the case law. Uh, what's illegal is a state is a meeting of the minds, a conscious commitment to a common scheme. Those are the, literally the phrases they use. So it's all about and the evidence that substantiates that is communication between individuals of different companies. So with algorithms, you have none of that. If we presume that they have you know, independently adopted these things, so they haven't decided beforehand to you know, coordinate and adopt them independently, they don't even know probably where these things are going to end up. They're just looking for higher profits. So we have none of that intent there. We have no meeting of minds. We don't have no minds because... We we really don't you know that gets into a deep philosophical question you know can machines have consciousness Uh, my own view is there's this argument by John Searle called the Chinese Room argument which I find pretty compelling that they do not so the whole legal framework is constructed on in a way that is just entirely unsuitable for this so then 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 it gets to the issue of one way and I've written an article on this to approach this is not to focus on meeting of minds, but indeed to focus on pricing practices. That's what we really want to prohibit and the types of practices that resulted in those higher prices that you saw. So I think there is an avenue, you know, but it does require changing you know, the, the, the law in that regard. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Bagwell Center podcast. For more content like this, please be sure to subscribe. And for more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit us online at coleskennesawedu slash econop.